This question is for the three writers. Um, you all write words that are not meant simply to stay on the page, but that are meant to be uttered or sung or otherwise, you know, made live. And I wondered why you work in theater and in musical theater rather than simply writing essays or novels or short stories or stuff that's meant to be read silently. And if you could describe for us the processes by which you create scenes or songs. Well, first of all, if you're in love with the theater, you're in love with the theater. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's called a love affair. I, I don't know if that's true of, 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 of Tony and, and Edward, but you know, from the time I started looking at things, which was movies, I got interested in telling stories that way. So I think you know, it would never have occurred to me to write. I don't read very much, so it would never occur to me to write prose. <laughs> you write what you see. You do what you're about anyway, don't you? Yeah. Um, I write plays because I'm a playwright. It would be really silly to try to add. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting form, um, and it has its, its uh, uh, incredibly complicated challenges. Um, uh, it's, it's wonderful in a sense because it is, um, I mean, playwriting as opposed to, let's say, screenwriting at least has a tradition of being both read and performed. So I think, I mean, I don't know if, if Stephen and Ed would agree with this, but I certainly am aware of the fact when I'm writing a script and when I teach playwriting, I always talk to my students about it, that you're also writing a text to be read. And, uh, and uh, that sort of um, the, the, uh, the amphibian nature of, of playwriting is fascinating, that it's both a score for a kinetic event and also it's, it's an attempt at literature, the greatest writer that ever lived also, was a playwright. Also, it, it lives through performance. And a movie, they give the same performances every time you see the movie. And the novel, the same words are on the same page, the different paper. In the theater, your work is constantly being reinvented, night after night, even with the same cast, not to mention when it gets done by other theaters and that sort of thing. So it ha it's constantly alive. That's a thrill, even when you're embarrassed by what they're doing. <laughs> Hello. Um, I study and live in France, which is a country which uh, feels swamped by foreign cultures today. Um, and the EU vote maybe you're, you're was getting part back of that this weekend. Last night, President Clinton was talking to us about the feeling of alienation, of loss of identity, of fear, of the unknown with globalization. Um, and I was just interested to hear your thoughts on the importance of cultural di diversity. You just said uh, art is civilization, so it's a vital part of each society. How can we preserve cultural diversity in the world today? Is the market system uh, automatically opposed to cultural diversity or is there some way to bring them together? And I ask that because I work at UNESCO at the same time on a project which is trying to bring people with business skills together with artists in developing countries and allow them to professionalize and turn their creativity into sustainable livelihoods. And if you have any ideas or uh, thoughts on that and if any of you would like to come and give us a hand uh, I appreciate it. Well, anyone want to try and respond to that? Tony. 
Well, I just had two things that occur to me. One is that I don't think that the market is necessarily the enemy of cultural diversity, although it can be. I mean, it both homogenizes culture globally um, uh, through mass marketing uh, of culture. It, it destroys a certain degree of local specificity. But also, it, it uh, as we're seeing now, in very complicated ways, eliminates national boundaries and sort of transcends the whole sort of era of the nation state and is consequently providing a kind of a mixing up of cultures that, you know, in, from things as simple as calling, you know, microwave, Microsoft to find out why my computer isn't working and talking to somebody in, you know, Bangladesh. Um, it's, a, it's a very complicated, it's created a sort of a complicated world at the same time that it's fighting uh, uh, a degree of complexity. So I think it's, it's um, I think adopting an, uh, a, a general ethos of, of multiculturalism is incredibly important uh, and, and certainly nowhere more important than in Europe right now where there are enormous challenges to uh, uh, all of the nations of the European Union uh, in terms of cultural diversity and, and, and uh, moving forward into, an, into a new kind of society that, that um, and I think the, the no vote on the uh, constitution in France and in the Netherlands is part of the, you know, it's again an enormously complicated thing that has partly to do with, with um, cultural freak out and partly to do with economic uh, terrorism on the part of the United States. So, you know, I mean, I think it's, and, and it's, you know, uh, agents like the World Bank. So I think it's, you know, it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated and interesting time to be asking those questions. We also don't welcome a lot of cultural diversity in this country. You know, Europe does have the advantage of having you're five miles away from an entirely different culture, which is not true here. But it's, it's I think also the American theater, certainly, we know that there's a degree of internationalism that's concealed in the history of the American theater. The serious American theater, in many ways, can be dated to two things, Eugene O'Neill and the visit of the Moscow Art Theater to Broadway in 1923. The Moscow Art Theater came here, stayed for 18 months, left behind Maria Uspenskaya and Richard Boleslavsky, who trained the generations of actors and directors who became the group theater. Who, so we were colonized by the Russians in the early 20s. Just as the English theater, you can point to the uh, visit of the Berliner Ensemble Brex Theatre to London in the mid-50s as an absolutely crucial moment in the history of English playwriting. And there's, got, there's a huge tradition in the theatre and in all cultures, I think, of a kind of internationalism that ends up creating seemingly national traditions. And I think we've got to uh, embrace that. We, we attempt to protect ourselves against that at our own cause. Thank you. Please. My name is Bilal Siddiqui. Um, I have a question that's primarily for Ms. Field, Mr. Washington, and Mr. Vader. Um, uh, right. I did, I did actually try and catch the voice. I, it, it rang, it, it really sent chills down my spine. Um, uh, but it's also more broadly for the whole panel. Um, in increasing, uh, increasingly over the last few years, probably ever since, uh, every, every time there is a very um, high energy political climate, you've seen the involvement of actors and celebrities in general, but actors in particular, um, and especially sort of screen actors who have you know, more exposure and whose faces are more universal than many other people, um, in political uh, and social causes. As champions, you've seen Bono take up the issue of debt relief. You've seen Britney Spears become the poster child for Bush. You've seen um, a number of uh, interventions by uh, Susan Sarandon, Tim Allen, so on, so forth, uh, Tim Robbins, and so on, so forth. Um, I was wondering, and particularly for the actors, but for, for all of you, 
Uh, three questions. One, to what extent do your politics find expression in your work, and uh, especially in the kind of movies and shows that you choose to uh, take part in? Two, uh, to what extent do you actually engage with political and social causes outside of um, your direct expression in your art? And three, to what extent would you uh, consider or want to step up um, those, uh, that, that level of involvement given you know, the urgency and immediacy of so many uh, issues around the world? I mean, the global HIV AIDS epidemic, poverty alleviation, the one campaign, so on and so forth that are, um, um, that are currently underway. Thanks. Uh, would the actors like to start with that? <laughs> Sally. Well, <laughs> actors who are lucky enough to be in the position to choose films and to see that films get made, um, your natural inclination is to choose films that, that make something respond in, in you. They make you laugh or they make you cry or they, you think they're, they're about something that has value to you. But that can also be very dangerous for an actor who is now able to produce films. You get into to produce films because they're very, they go against what you are as an actor. And when you are an actor who's directing yourself, producing the film, and it, it, is a it becomes very dangerous territory if what you really are trained to be is an actor. Um, you, it is really hard to keep those um, arenas uh, separate. Um, as far as, you know, it's a whole long conversation about responsibility of celebrity. I mean, there should be a panel here of celebrities where we could talk about the phenomenon in this country that is absolutely repulsive, which is this celebrity phenomenon. Yes, it has always been to a certain extent, but right now and over the last 10, 15 years, it has grown to this absolutely horrendous repulsive uh, part of, I believe, my culture. I believe it speaks to the lowest common denominator. You have three uh, you know, incredible artists on this stage who have taught audiences how to see things. They have elevated their audiences. And when their audiences came, they went, what? Uh, you know, they were, they were confused and horrified in many cases. And these men taught them. And we're doing the opposite now. We're speaking down to audiences. We are dumbing them all down by, you know, drilling this insidious information about celebrities that may or may not be true, but who cares? Um, and the point is, is that when, when celebrities speak up and try to use that power that's being handed to them for a more important purpose, bravo. It doesn't matter whether they're beat up for it. I mean, at least this power that's being handed to them, they're trying to use uh, in, a, in, a, in a useful fashion. Um, that's my answer. I don't know what I answered, but there it is. And you got to remember, too, that the, the, the media, or the, pick your newspapers, magazines, whatever, they're in the business to sell newspapers and magazines. So if someone famous who happens to have a microphone in their face, like I do now, says something foolish, and that can help to sell newspapers, that's what they're going to put on. You know, what Edward Albee has to say, they, they might not find as interesting. It may be true. They probably don't understand. Well, they don't understand it, right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's like, a, you know, if, the, if, a, if a building is burning over here and, and, and you are helping young children to better their education over there, guess which one's going to get on the newspaper, on, on television? So that's, that's unfortunately the culture we live in. We live in. And Mr. Jones, do you want to speak about 
how your own politics influence your choice of work? Or uh, no, I have no politics, but I'd like to say, <laughs> I, mean, I really don't. Uh, I'd like to say, uh, because I, I had a friend once back at the Shakespeare Festival in, in Shakespeare in the Park who said an actor should be able to function under a fascist regime or a communist regime. That was back in the days when we were very busy with the communist uh, uh, right-wing, left-wing thing with, with communism. Uh, and uh, it, it made some kind of sense. Not just to make a living, but you be, should be able to function in any society. Um, but the, the times I felt most comfortable is when I have a playwright and had the pleasure a couple of times of uh, August Wilson, who doesn't speak polemic. He gives you experience that does help you, helps to change your thinking, perhaps at least your feelings about society. Ethel Fugard was the other one who was, um, was determined by law that he couldn't speak to overthrow the government of South Africa at the time of, of apartheid. But so he learned how to write the experience. You can present the downtrodden through the experience from what they said and then things that were said to them. And I felt most comfortable working with those two writers uh, who did not have a polemic, did, did not have a message to, to offer. You know. But on the other hand, just by who you choose to represent, who gets voice, who gets it. There's a wonderful piece in uh, Alfred Kazin's uh, uh, memoir about growing up in the 30s, about what it meant for him to see Clifford Odets's plays, to see his parents and grandparents, these Jewish immigrants, up on stage, he wrote, as if they had every right to be there, as much right as Lear or Hamlet, that it made him feel like he belonged in the country. And, that, and that's one of the great things that theater does. It gives voice to individuals, and it empowers that person just by saying they're worth listening to. Uh, the signs that are being held up to me say, last question, two minutes, sum up. So you can ask the last question, you get two minutes, and I'll sum up. All right. I, I will ask quickly. Thank you all for being here. Um, one thing that... that I would assert is that creativity is incredibly important for all of our fields, creating an environment, whether we're in public service or science or business or the arts, where individuals and collectively as a group, we can encourage creativity and express that creativity um, to drive our work forward. It seems to me to be exceedingly important. As individuals who have you know, accomplished tremendous creative things, as well as people who I'm sure have worked in environments or created environments where creativity has been allowed to flourish. What, what advice would you give us about you know, encouraging creativity in our own work, in our own universities and companies or organizations? Yikes. Advice about encouraging creativity. <laughs> well, as I, I, went, I studied at uh, the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco and Bill Ball was the artistic director there back in the 70s. And uh, he used to make this positation speech, he called it. <laughs> you familiar with it? But, but one thing that stuck with me, and it depends upon your profession, but in, in, as an actor, he talked about failing big. You know, I never understood when people said, well, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to have that to fall back on. I never understood that concept personally. I don't want to fall back on anything. If I want to fall, I want to fall forward. I'm going to at least see what I'm going to hit. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? I don't want to fall back. I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, in some fields of work, that not, may not be a, a good idea to fail big. But, uh, <laughs> but as an actor, I've tried to hold on to that and, 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 and point being not being afraid to take chances. To at least think big. Fail big in your house, you know, in your room while you're creating. Maybe you can't always take that to work. But to have that attitude, to feel this attitude, I think is important. It's been important for me. In a democracy, you can have anything you want. Also in a democracy, you end up with exactly what you deserve. Now, if, if we want the arts to hold a mirror up to us and say, look, this is who you are. This is how you behave. Think about it. If you don't like what you see, why don't you change? Then the arts are useful. If, if the arts are meant to be merely decorative and escapist and take us out of our problems, uh, the arts are basically there to help us understand that all art is there so that it won't be necessary anymore. That in the utopian society, there'd be no need for art. But, but until that, that happens, the arts are useful. Any art that is not utilitarian and is not educational in its subtle way uh, is, is failing its responsibility. So there. Uh, yeah, so there. <laughs> and uh, in summing up, as the sign ordered me to do. May I just say one there thing? we go, Sally Fried. Just one last little thing. <laughs> you know what? Uh, no matter what arena you are entering into, and, and I have spoken to many of you now, and then in all of these extraordinary fields that you're studying. If you ever found the opportunity to take an acting class or two, do. Because you talk about creativity and how to find it. Every human being is, is a human being, and the creativity is found in the same part of our brains of you people who are actually studying this. And I've talked to a couple of you now studying the brains and, and, and taking pictures of it and trying to figure out when we're thinking whatever we're thinking. <laughs> but an acting class, try to find a place wherever you live to take an acting class or two and take it seriously and hopefully you find a good teacher. And it really does talk to the creative side part of your brain and, it, and it's kind of amazing.